0: Episode 1, Season 4, people. Can't believe it. And today we talk with Sabina Murray, award-winning author of The Human Zoo. We talk about where culture and the nest meets literature. Can't wait to share it with you. It's a great conversation.
1: Like a sparrow building shelter with branches for its young. My mother built a nest with love for her little ones. My grandfather told her, doesn't matter what you have, The only thing you need for life is each other's helping hands And never the emptiness, my mother always says
0: Everybody and welcome to another episode of Never the Emptiness. This is gonna be our first episode of season four. I cannot believe we're at season four. Can you, Nikki? I really cannot. It's crazy. it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. Time flies. We're just like, yeah. My mom is not here today because she's taking care of um, the grandmother, who's who's um needs to be tucked in, literally, right now, <laughs> because we usually do this earlier, but today it's tuck-in time, so she's doing that. But today we have an amazing guest, Sabina Murray, who is a, a writer, an author, a novelist, and also a screenwriter. And we're going to be talking to her a little bit about her book, The Human Zoo. Hi, Sabina.
2: Hi, thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for being here. We're super excited. We have the Miami Book Fair coming up next week, essentially. For everyone who's listening that's not in Miami, we're literally (laughs) under a hurricane watch as we speak. But it looks like the storm is passing through, and um, we will have the book fair. So hopefully we will be seeing you, and everything will be well. And we're just really excited. I just want to introduce a little bit about Sabina, talk a little bit about her, and then we can start chatting Sabina's new book is called The Human Zoo. Her resume is pretty impressive. It really is. Um, she's, yeah. So she's been a Michener fellow at UT Austin, a Bunting fellow at Radcliffe, a Guggenheim, has received the Penn Faulkner Award, a Massachusetts Cultural Council grant, a National Endowment for the Arts, et cetera, et cetera. I can keep going. She has a, a film called A Beautiful Country, which was nominated for what I found out were the Nor- Norwegian Oscars, which is pretty cool. <laughs> and uh, the new the new book is about a woman, Christina, who goes back to the Philippines and um is gone back after a divorce and, or no, it's not a divorce yet. yet. Nope. On the rocks. Correct. And it's it's a potential divorce because the book leaves us hanging a little bit, but I'm not going to talk about that very much. It's a love story. And it's also this sort of like political thriller. And it gets to the heart of politics in a place that I feel like my sister and I, being Cuban-American, understand what it's like to go back to a place that people see a certain way and then actually what it's like to be inside of that place mm-hmm. where you're from. So I was super in tune and connected to it. And I just want to sort of ask you where it came from, because it looks like it started with an actual article that you wrote.
2: Yeah. So years ago, yeah. I can't remember the exact year. It was 2016, I think uh, in January. I was contacted by Vice and they asked me to pitch an article. They thought that maybe because, you know, I did grow—I grew up in the Philippines. My mother was Filipino. I spent all of my high school years there and I go back and see my family. So I still have a connection there. They wanted somebody to write about Duterte, you know, the president at the time. Mm-hmm. You know, I was trying to figure out what article to pitch. And I decided I didn't know why he was so popular. Mm. So the Vice article, which you can find, was actually me going around and asking people, "Why are you voting for this guy?" You know, which are questions we ask ourselves about. We just went through an election, right? Mm-hmm. And we're, I was like, "Why did you vote for that guy?" It's just yeah. So it was in my mind, um, and I was very disturbed in the at the direction that the Philippines was taking. Because yeah. I was living there, you know, in the final years of Marcos and the Edsa Revolution, which is when, you know, the Filipinos finally said, enough with this dictator. Mm-hmm. And they managed to kind of have this pretty, uh, very effective and not particularly bloody revolution. Mm-hmm. What could have happened? So I thought, you know, really, I'm not a journalist. I'm a fiction writer. And I wanted right. to write something that talked about that. Um, and so inspired me, too. Is just how you can feel so passive and passivity is very, you know, you kind of become complicit in it. Mm-hmm. So I really wanted to write about that. Like you don't think you're the problem because your heart's in the right place, right? Your heart can be in the right place and you can still be a massive contributor yeah. to these, these unacceptable situations that victimize many, many people. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it was, you know, it's kind of a political um, idea. And I just went at it from the art angle because that's just kind of how, when you're a writer, that's how you go after everything.
0: Yep. It's interesting because, I mean, for us Cubans, you know, for a lot of people who aren't living inside Cuba but are really have it inside of us and for generations and generations, it's sort of like, oh, well, you're not Cuban enough to tell that part of the story. Mm, I was about to go there. So where, you know, where is your place in that narrative? And I feel like, What you did in this book, which is, I think, what, you know, fiction writers can do is, like, you entered this point of view, which was this particular character's point of view, who has a lot more information than the average American about the Philippines or Australian Mm -hmm. or whatever, you know, but it's a very specific point of view. And it's also really valuable. I loved that about the book, you know, so I don't know if you actively made that choice to say
2: I'm going to go through this character i you know i was aware as somebody who hadn't really been living in the philippines for years um and also the philippines has many many excellent Mm -hmm. writers and it's one of the few nations in the world i don't know of any other where our national hero is actually a fiction writer Mm. who you know started a revolution that ended up It it created all kinds of vacuums and problems for the the Spanish colonial regime. And he's still very important in Philippine culture. So I was aware, why am I writing this book? And I kept thinking, well, there are a lot of Filipino writers. Why am I going to come in as somebody who moved away? And I lived there all of high school. I Mm -hmm. speak some of the language. My family's there and I see them. But really, why do you need me to write this book? And then I really had to say, well, you know, it's my perspective on it. Mm Mm-hmm. That perspective is valuable. So I thought if I, I stayed close to what I really could write about, mm-hmm. that that would be the authenticity I needed. Yeah. And it wasn't going to be the Filipino book about living under Duterte. It was going to be my Filipino book about what it's like to interact, you know, with the, with that culture that means so much to me mm-hmm. that's being subjected to this despotism. So you know, that was I almost felt like if I had jumped around, if I had tried to write from the perspective of, you know, a Filipino journalist who's living in Manila, that 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 mm. wasn't really my story to tell. But yeah. I did feel like I had a story to tell. So that's where that perspective came from.
0: Yeah, that's amazing. Our, our national hero is also a poet. José Martí, yes. yes. yeah, <laughs> yeah,
2: and and when I went
0: to Nigeria, it was insane because I was with like we were with Wole Soyinka, and he's also like he's on billboards, so he's also a kind of national hero. So yeah. the place of the writer in so many places, I think, is there is that history. But I mean, you talked about this a little bit, but my sister and I have been talking about this a lot, and we, this show is about nests and where we come from what our families are like, whether they are the, the ones that birthed us or our created ones or the ones that like end up taking us in, you know, your particular story is really interesting because you're born in the States, but then you go to Australia, right? And then yeah. and end then up to back in Manila and then back here. Yeah. <laughs> so
2: tell us a little bit about that and what all those nests were like. Yeah. So my father is an anthropologist and an academic and I was born in Pennsylvania my sister was actually born in Turkey. Wow. So they cool. moved around a lot. My mother liked to move. It was <laughs> just like, I think I want to pack up everything. And she would bring everything. <laughs> and I would, let's go to another continent. Wow. So my dad, you know, in, in the early 70s, it was kind of a rough time in the U.S. And he just, he got a job in Western Australia. Mm. And so we went there. And then ended up spending, I don't think my mother thought we would be there for quite so long. I mean, Perth is really kind of an isolated place. Mm -hmm. Your closest neighbor is Singapore. You've got the desert at your back. And it was a very, very interesting place to to grow up. But then at some point, she just wanted to go home. She was just like, enough is enough. And then we went and moved to Manila. Um, And I was there for all of high school. And then, you know, I left to go to the to college. I started college in the Philippines, and then I just kind of wanted to go to the U.S. to try that out. Everybody was always telling me I was I was American. I'd never lived in the U.S. <laughs> it was very weird, so I thought I, you know, go try it out. And then all of a sudden, I realized, you know, my family in the Philippines, everybody is, you know, it's very wonderful. It's very warm. They're very supportive, but there are many more opportunities for me. As somebody who wanted to work, as somebody who just wanted to, there are many entanglements in Philippine society, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't move as an individual. It's not, it's beyond frowned upon. I think it's actually impossible Mm -hmm. to move without a bunch of people helping you and, Mm -hmm. you know, paving the way and connecting. I just felt like, you know, as a writer, I wanted to stay in the U.S. And then, you know, so in terms of like what happens to Ting in the book, well, all of a sudden, you know, she wakes up, she's American. That kind of happened to me. I was just yeah. like, "Am I American? Maybe I'm American. Like my dad's American. I'm living in the U.S. Yeah. Maybe I am.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. You know, I moved around a lot, but the family I'm closest to, my extended family that I'm closest to and that I, you know, I care so deeply about, it's it or the people in the Philippines or the people my Filipino family who live in the U.S. now."
0: It's so interesting because, I mean, every culture is different, but then there's these little threads that that sort of sing throughout, you know, and I know that there was a huge difference between when, you know, I've gone to Cuba and then I've come back to the States and it's like, oh, this is a totally, it's just a very different feeling when you come back in terms of you're in Cuba and there's no living alone that doesn't yeah. exist, <laughs> you know what I mean? And like... If someone's gonna grow in the family, you just like with your hands build another room up above. You know what I mean? Like, absolutely. It's, it's a different kind of nesting. So, like, even though we've like brought that over and have that sort of like embedded, it still feels very different. You know, like there's still a choice to be made where over there is just like a life, a way of life. So, I know I'm just curious about what high school was like in the Philippines.
2: Oh my God. When I first got there, <laughs> So traumatized because <laughs> we were all taught in English. Mm. But the moment you stepped out of the classroom, mm. everybody spoke Tagalog. Tagalog yeah. They all spoke beautiful English. Mm. They all wrote papers in English. But outside of that, no, they didn't want to do that. And it was in a country where my aunts would tell me stories. You'd be fine, like, I don't know, peso for every word of Tagalog that you were caught speaking wow. in the school. Wow. We were still being taught in English. And, you know, I mean, I might have gone to the international school, but that just wasn't going to happen because I have this huge Filipino family. They're like, why would we do that? You know, but I was in a school where my cousins had actually gone to school Two of One of my cousins had been kicked out of that, the school. My aunt had been kicked <laughs> out of the school for reading Gone with the Wind and rolling up her sleeves. So it was kind oh of a family tradition. And it did take me a while. It took me a while to make friends. I was, you know, Kind of, I was an outsider. I wasn't just seen as an outsider. I was an outsider, and I was so spaced out because I had been in Western Australia in the '70s, and that place, you know, we were very athletic and sporty, and in the tough way that Australians are. I was considered a very poor athlete in Australia. When I got to the Philippines, I was like <laughs> an Olympian. <laughs> also, the the girls were there, when they hit high school, all of a sudden they were beautifully clothed. Mm. And very well mannered and really prided themselves on those things. And I just found that very freaky. I was 12 years old. You know, why is everybody walking around with a hairbrush in their Mm -hmm. pocket? Why do they care so much about that? And also, it was such a gender segregated society. So I was in an all girls school. You would have the all boys school, you would have these kind of formal encounters, dances, Mm -hmm. and stuff where everyone behaving in a very courtly way. Yeah. The weirdest thing was, you know, we didn't have a phone line for a while. It took a long time. I don't know if it's like this in Cuba, but uh-huh. we built a house and it took us a long time to have a telephone. Um, when we finally did, it was with a party line where you pick up the phone. If somebody was already talking, <laughs> on. I was just, oh my God. But the guys would have to, um, they would come in packs to court certain girls. They would just show up outside your door. Wow. And then, you know, if you're reading a book, as I was, you know, often doing, lying around, no air conditioning, right? The, the heat in my shorts, and all of a sudden, you, you realize, you'd be told that there was a pack of guys out in front of the house, and that someone wanted to court you. <laughs> you have to get oh, all gosh. dressed and, you know, serve cakes or something. It was That's absolute <laughs> hell. And it was Victorian. Yeah. yeah. It's not like that in Manila anymore, but you know, my kids are always joking, like, what year did that happen? Wow. Not that long yeah, ago. Yeah.
3: yeah. Wow. How was the transition into high school in America? I mean, that's a very different culture, so I mean, you felt like an outsider, you said a bit, in Philippines. Did you feel the same way also in America when you got Back to the u s
2: yeah, well, I didn't go back to the oh, U.S. college that's right, college.
3: college so the transition into college, I guess then how was how was that?
2: I came to the u s as a foreigner,
3: yeah, yeah, I
2: had a roommate from Pakistan who's still a very close friend of mine. I see her every year, and we just were just like these people are very strange, <laughs> you know, I was in the international students dorm,, oh. so we had a lot of rights. We just found the Americans bizarre, yeah, and you know. Even though she was from Pakistan and she's also, you know, she's like a, a very butch lesbian. I don't, but we had so much in common <laughs> Yeah. despite all of that. We are just like, who are these people? <laughs> you know? And I found things really weird. Like people drank a lot of milk. I'm like, you drink milk, like glasses of it. It just I all know. this Yeah, stuff. that was weird to us too. Weird. The milk
3: thing is weird. We were we're super we were weird. raised very like Cuban in America. Yeah. But that's just a whole yeah, other thing. That's a whole other thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to ask when you got into writing, why you got into writing. Is someone in your family a, a, also a creative? Like how did
2: that, you know, bloom? My mother had a great respect for writers and she had favorite books. But we did not have many books in my family growing up. Um, I read a lot of my dad's books, which were all about anthropology. Uh-huh. And I started reading those at a young age. But I really did start writing stories. I like really, really young. I have a notebook. I was like seven years old, barely able to write. And I always, always wanted to put things down. But it was really when I got to college, I had a really good teacher. The best thing she did, the first thing, you know, you think that she saw my writing and she thought it was amazing. and It was great. No. I wrote something for her that I thought was really well done. And she said, yeah, you can write, but you know what? This is boring. (laughs) I was like, oh my God, you're so right. This is so boring. I'm so sorry I made you read that. And it was because I was really scared. I wasn't, Mm -hmm. you know, I didn't know what I had to write about. So I started working on a novel, which was my senior thesis, which was set in the Philippines. Mm -hmm. Um, It was called Slow Burn. And it was Mm -hmm. about somebody at the end of the uh, the Marcos regime, like a young Manila socialite. Yeah. And weirdly that book got taken when I was 20 and I had to wait to sign the contract. <laughs> wow. And I thought, yay, I'm here. No, I was not there. Um, yeah. It took me another 10 years to get a book published. And I went oh, to school wow. after that novel was published. And I don't think I was terribly popular when I first showed up because I showed up with a book published and I was just mm-hmm. like, I don't know what else to do. Mm-hmm. I was twenty four years old, you know, and you wanted to write more.
0: It just always fascinates me. Writers' journeys are all completely different, yeah, you know, I mean, there's no real real path, but it hearing you talk about your father being an anthropologist makes me think like it makes sense that also this this central part of the it's not it's not that it's a central part of the narrative, but I mean the title comes from it, which is the Midway to the World Fairs, which is where you know, you have this whole section of the book that the narrator is actually writing from inside the book. And I, I do remember, I was a researcher at when I was really young for another writer who was writing about Burt Williams, which was a black vaudevillian who had to wear black face and we had to sort of research around and we got to the midway and the midway is always the most fascinating part of anything like I have a book in a drawer that never got published which was like has the center as you know the midway because it's this part of the world's fairs which were I don't know if you want to talk about it a little bit and share with us like what was fascinating and horrifying for you and, you know, why it's here in in the book for you.
2: You know, the horror that is kind of easily available, there are these amazing pictures. I started looking at pictures of it. I first came upon the story of Timicek in a book called War in Turpentine by Mm -hmm. Stephen Hartzman, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's about, it's really, it's all set in around, in and around um, Ghent in Belgium, a small town first, and then in Ghent. And it's one of these books that just collects other mini narratives into it. And one of the mini narratives that got swept into this novel was the story of a Filipino tribesman who had ended up abandoned in Ghent Mm -hmm. and had died of pneumonia. And he was a chief of the Bontoc tribe. His name was Timicheg. And they had named a tunnel after him, which seems so bizarre. (laughs) And it stuck in my head. I was like, who was this person? How did he end up there? So I started digging around. I'm an avid researcher. I love the research. Even if I never wrote anything, if I if you could have a job which meant you just researched stuff mm-hmm. and then walked away from it, that would be a great job. Yeah. And I started thinking about what it meant more and more. And you also realize that you know the Bontoc Igorot, yeah, they are victims, but they were also businessmen. Uh huh. They were brave. And they were, they were like, you know what? The world is changing and we have our wonderful little life here that we like. Mm-hmm. But if we don't change too, if we don't learn, we're going to get left behind. So they were definitely exploited. And I'm not saying that they weren't or that anyone would want that as their job. But they wanted the money. Right. And they wanted to be seen as businessmen and entertainers. Yeah. Now, I don't think they got that. but. I think it's very important to see, you know, they sued, like the Bontoc sued one of their handlers for back pay, and they won. Mm.
0: For those that that don't know, I mean, essentially, they were on display, right? At the They were on
2: display. At certain times, they would have to, they would get dogs from the pound, mm -hmm. and the Bontoc occasionally would eat dogs, but it was more kind of, it was not on the menu all the time. Mm Mm-hmm. They would kill this dog daily so that people could watch them do it and then they would eat it. Right. And so they were enacting a savagery that had been constructed for them. They weren't observing their own behaviors at all. And it was also very cold and they were wearing, you know, their native outfits, which were G strings, you know, not, not good for the climate at all. And that was what they were being paid not much to do. The horror of it is inescapable. And it's just also the way that it tied in with American policy at the time where yeah. the Philippines was trying to get independence. Right. And then they had these people come out and act like there was no way they would ever be able to govern themselves. No way they could ever be a world power. Because mm-hmm. look, at look, they're eating this dog from the pound. And they were right. given the script to enact for the American public. So it's, you know, just on the gut level, yeah. It's just, it's something that should never have happened. But then when you peel off that first layer of, you know, distaste and outrage, yeah, there's a seething kind of pool of different elements that make it even kind of more horrifying.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's all these layers. It's all these layers and paradoxes that happen within that. But I think they're also, I mean, they find their way into the narrative even now, like when you're into the book you're writing, but like when I was reading about them about the Midway and everybody who was on display from other places from, from you know, the Philippines and Africa. I was researching a book about, literally, A black vaudevillian who was famous and had to wear blackface, but he was famous. So it's this idea of like, who's winning here? Mm -hmm. You know, and what does that even mean? And the problematic layers that are all in that, you know, like who's actually has winning this power struggle? So that was really interesting to me that you had that in the center of this book because then you know at the end you also have these. Americans who are in the Philippines, American Filipinos who are in the Philippines and like who's, you know, vying for power or not. And so like that got layered in there in a really interesting way in the book, I thought toward the end. So I have a a question for you about your audience. Do Filipinos read your book or do you feel like it's an American audience or a global audience or just an English speaking audience? I had that question because I think about that sometimes when I write about Cuba. Like, who were the people actually reading it and who is it for?
2: When I was writing this book, I'm worried about that question. It's almost like I feel like asking it back to you, like, yeah, yeah. who is this book for? Yeah, yeah. I really <laughs> wanted Filipinos to see it as an authentic depiction of Manila. Yeah. And I got that. I got that in reviews and letters. That's like, great. you know, the people who said that it wasn't Filipino enough were people who had grown up in the US and might have had a different idea. Because yeah. I'm writing about a very tiny enclave of the mixed race Filipinos who have been there yeah. for hundreds of years. I mean, there's still Crayolas in in the mm. in the Philippines who are, you know, lived in the Manila their whole lives and that don't have one drop of Filipino blood. They're all Spanish. Yeah. The thing is that Manila always is talked about as kind of, you know, scary, dirty, backward. You know, this we oh, you know, oh, it's so hard. How is it living in Manila? I'm like, to me, it's a very beautiful place. To mm-hmm. me, the culture is extremely unique. Yeah. And well, for me, when you hear somebody on the street selling one of the vendors singing their wares and they all have different calls. Mm-hmm. And if you're in there in the morning, you have the Pandasal guy, the jarriobote guy, you know, the maiz guy, the balut guy, they're all singing, they all have different songs. To me, that's a beautiful thing. And people yeah always, you can always hear a rooster crowing in Manila. (laughs) I don't know why. I mean, not in Makati, not in the really built up neighborhood, but where I usually stay, I can hear that stuff. So I wanted to write about it truthfully, but I also wanted people to see, you know, there's a lot of beauty in this place. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of wonder that people don't get to access. Yeah. Need to think about the Philippines in a different way. They Mm -hmm. need to not write it off as an unevolved culture because it's super evolved and it has so many really grand things to it. So that was something I was also trying to do with a book was just Mm -hmm. say, you know, take a look, find something interesting here. You know, these are really it's a unique and powerful culture.
0: I mean I love that about bridge writers, you know, that have been here and there and inside both and can speak both languages because I feel that then when you write the narrative It opens up a world to, you know, an English-speaking audience that might see a place in a different way. So, I don't know. I I was completely into, like, inside the book. So, (laughs) I loved it. Nikki, where's Mena from? I was about to say, yeah, I have a really,
3: really good friend I've known since college, Chris Mena, uh, who's Filipino. He's American from Texas, but his parents his yeah. whole family's from manila and he goes uh, sometimes a, a whole summer he loves going um yeah. and he actually took me to visit some family i think in san francisco one year one of his cousins passed away and they and the, it was the year anniversary and they do like mm-hmm. this really beautiful like ceremony and and everyone's together and they cook a lot of delicious food and it is just like i really I, it's a beautiful culture it feels very familial to me and welcoming and it reminds me a little bit of the of the cuban culture i think maybe that's why me and mena connected in that way so much there's actually a really large filipino community in la i live in la uh in california yeah, yeah. yeah. and yeah. Uh, um, actually the church i go to there's a huge it's almost all filipino and I, I i wanted to ask you like because you're away from it but you really identify yourself the most with that culture, if I understand you correctly, like, what do you, yeah. do you, do you cook anything Filipino? What is it? That, what kind of, what do you practice within the culture at home to feel more close to, you know, the Philippines?
2: I do have a really good friend who's, who's a Filipino writer, Gina Apostol, who I see every few weeks. She splits her time between New York and Hadley, which is the next town over from Amherst. So I get to see Gina. We talk about a lot of, you know, Filipino writers, a lot, She's very political. She keeps me up to speed. She keeps me honest. Mm. She has a hard edge to her, which is, you know, she's ferocious. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I really have nice. a good friend who's close. I try to get back. I haven't been back since COVID, but I try to get back every couple of years. Right. Mm-hmm. And I stay in touch with my aunts, my mother's family, but it's something, you know, it's also my kids grew up inundated with Filipino things without realizing it. Right. Yeah. They act in very Filipino mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. So I, I do have that with me. It's also because so many Filipinos are, we're we're one of those displaced people, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of workers go overseas. It's kind of like sometimes it, you know I think about it. It's like the Irish maybe in the mm-hmm. 1900s where so many people working in houses were also Filipinos, and you know all the way up the board like doctors. Down to house helpers, a lot of Filipinos have to work overseas just because of the difficult political situations Mm -hmm. that they often operate in fields that are highly prized overseas, you know, everything from nurses to, to Yaya's, nannies. you know. So you do see a lot of Filipinos around, like around, even just around here, I can get Filipino food and yeah. yeah. And this is Amherst, Massachusetts. Right, right, right. Yeah, but I'd say most of my cooking, I have, I have like a. My birthday last year, what I got for myself was like a high-end rice cooker that actually <sighs> plays "Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star" yeah. when you put it <laughs> cook all different kinds of rice. It's amazing. Yummy. So yeah. I love it. That's Cubans awesome. are big on rice, too. <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, we're all big on food. We're trail, all big on food, know? yeah. We write about it. We do the whole thing. Why don't you tell us where you're going to be at the book fair? Because a lot of people that are listening to this are going to hear. Do you know the date that you're going to be speaking in the, um, the time? Of- on Sunday. I don't know.
2: I can't. don't have exactly where it is. I-
0: on Sunday at the book fair, at the Miami book fair. For sure it's on Sunday, right? Sunday the 20th? It's Sunday the 20th. Sunday the twentieth, we'll we'll write it into the into the notes. Sunday the twentieth, Miami Book Fair, and I'll see you. Because if you're around, um, I'm gonna be talking at noon at the Children's Alley, so because that's where I'm gonna be doing um, what the bread says. So if y- people can look this up, it's a really easy schedule. The Miami Book Fair is one of the best in the world, literally it's huge, yeah. and um, yeah. And so you can look it up online and look up any author. So if you look up Sabina Murray, you can see what time and the place where she's going to be talking and reading. Are you going to be reading or probably in conversation? Usually it's a conversation. i mean,
2: conversation.
0: It's great. So on Sunday. And hopefully you will check her out and many, many other writers that are going to be in town. So I will hopefully see you there. I'm looking forward to it. And it has been amazing
3: to have you. Such a pleasure. Thank you for being on our podcast. Thank you so much.
0: And we'll see you soon.
1: Bye. 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 With all of your success, she says all the great things ahead. I'll be here when it's time to see you again. If you fall, she says, if someone breaks your heart I'll mend your wounds in this nest of ours till you're ready to depart